I remember it like it was yesterday. Our eyes met across the foyer, his eyes so blue, piercing into mine. I hesitated for a moment, heart racing, as we almost simultaneously uttered, Will you make the kids their lunch, please? Oh, I hesitated. I know, I know. What's the big deal, right? I am their mom after all. But here's the thing. I have three kids. They're young, all close in age, and suffice to say, there's maybe three foods that all of them will eat at the same time, none of which are great for them, and two out of the three they already had for breakfast. We were in a hurry, so in the interest of time, I got the wise idea to make cheese quesadillas. And you guessed it. It was a hit for approximately one and a half children. I mean, that's the glass half full, right? Don't ask the other half of my daughter, though. I'm pretty sure she will say no while weeping because she actually meant yes. So what does all of this have to do with OCD? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Cheese. Cheese. Nothing says, hey, what's this podcast all about? Quite like cheese. So here's the deal. My oldest, we'll call him Jack because, well, that's his name, doesn't like cheese quesadillas. From our house, that is. Yeah, he loves to frequent the cheese quesadilla from our local Mexican eatery, and he will devour cheese all the live long day and so far that there's pepperoni on top and sauce and crust underneath. But cheese? particularly yellow shredded cheddar cheese because we fancy, or God forbid, an individually packaged cheese stick. Now we're crossing the line. You see, Jack has OCD. It's not about him being picky or even spoiled. It's about his fear that said cheese will make him sick, that he will throw up, that this cheese, particularly the yellow cheddar cheese from home, will ruin his day. He can eat yellow cheese at school or even at the jelly bean restaurant, which used to be Jack's endearing way of classifying a fancy establishment here in town that has both caviar and jelly bellies featured on their salad bar. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we don't talk about queso not at home. We don't talk about queso. Yeah. <laughs> As a mom who has a clinically picky eater outside of Jack and my damsel in distress daughter, sometimes there are battles you just don't want to fight. Oh, but there's more. I'm an OCD therapist, too. <laughs> so sometimes, even though I know that Jack needs support and practice fighting his OCD thought loops, I avoid making him a quesadilla. Because if I make it, I have to follow through with our OCD homework. And sometimes, 
it's just easier to not and to just avoid the trigger, the energy that it takes to follow through. It's easier to avoid the distress that inevitably ripples throughout the entire household when OCD starts bullying Jack. And just like that, OCD can easily start running its playbook if we let it. And sometimes we let it because we're tired. We're tired. Sound familiar? You're not alone. On that note, I'm proud and honored to say Jack, the boy himself, and those dashing pair of blue eyes, aka my handsome hubs Patrick, will be my inaugural guests on the OCD Family Podcast. My intent is to provide an interview-style show where I can feature a myriad of guests to explore the highs, the lows, and spirals, oh my, that we experience when we love someone suffering from OCD. But before we get into interview land, I think it's important to start at the very beginning. I mean, I've heard that's a very good place to start. And by that, I mean, let's talk about psychoeducation. What is psychoeducation? Well, it means I want to reserve this first episode for diving into the weeds a bit more on what OCD is and why I wanted to bring this content to you. So what is OCD? You done with OCD? Yeah, you know me. Uh, no. (laughs) OCD actually stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Chances are, if you found this podcast, you already know this traitor all too well. But in the event that you're new to this acronym, let's follow the rabbit down its trail, shall we? OCD was initially documented somewhere between the 14th, 15th, I don't know, 17th century, but it all depends on who you ask. I turned to my trusty old friend, the interwebs, for more information. You know, the internet is kind of like a metaphor for OCD. We go to it for information based on a question that pops into our brain, and in a second or less, depending on your internet provider, you can learn the answer. Or answers? Seriously, though, I don't think I've ever typed a question into a search engine and one simple answer was published. Yes. No. Eric code 404? In fact, just for kicks and giggles, I googled do I have OCD and a mere 49.8 million results popped up in approximately 0.6 seconds. But questions are the tip of the iceberg. Often it is the weight behind these questions that distresses people, otherwise known as intrusive thoughts. Intrusive thoughts can be just that, thoughts, but they can also generate in the form of impulses or imagery and they are foundational to the O in OCD, obsessions. I feel like the International OCD Foundation, or IOCDF, states it best when they say, quote, obsessions are typically accompanied by intense and uncomfortable feelings such as fear, disgust, doubt, or a feeling that things have to be done in a just right way. In the context of OCD, obsessions are time-consuming, and they get in the way of important activities that the person values, end quote. More so, under the avalanche of distress, compulsions are born. That's our C in OCD. IOCDF goes on to define compulsions as, quote, behaviors an individual engages in in an attempt to get rid of the obsessions and or decrease his or her distress, end quote. For any of my clients that may be listening, we know compulsions to be anything that minimizes, neutralizes, or avoids the perceived outcome of the intrusive thought. But here's the deal. All human beings get intrusive thoughts from time to time. I mean, our brains are amazing. 
And according to a study published out of Nature Communications by Sang and Pop Hank in July 2020, the average person has 6,200 thoughts a day. I mean, they can't all be winners, people. So does this mean we're all a little bit OCD? No. No, 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 no. Not at all. That brings us to the D in OCD. What makes someone OCD? Well, I'm going to totally oversimplify this, but fortunately, the interwebs has 49.8 million answers just waiting for you. (laughs) Actually, let's make that 49.8 million and one, because you can check out my website at ocdfamilypodcast.com, where I have more information on OCD, bios for our guests, citations when applicable, you name it. But for now, I'll give you the jargony answer first, and then I'll translate it into real people talk, yeah? According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, otherwise referred to as the DSM-5, and the International Classification of Diseases, 10th revision, known respectively as ICD-10, OCD crosses the threshold into disorder when those intrusive, obsessional thoughts are persistently getting stuck in a thought loop that triggers one's compulsions. The compulsions be they physical or mental acts, rituals, or behaviors, may or may not relieve some distress in the moment. In fact, most OCD sufferers will tell you that they feel great anguish around their compulsions, and they wish they didn't have to engage in these exhausting, at times agonizing actions. They take up time, and they keep a person from living their best life. Furthermore, they disrupt our ability to function at home, maybe school, work, or in our social relationships. Now rinse, lather, and repeat. It just goes on. Real people talk? I want you to imagine a clock in front of you. At about 12 o'clock, I want you to imagine an intrusive thought. Like the cheese that's going to make you sick. You see, it's not just that you have an intrusive thought. Because we all get intrusive thoughts from time to time. Every single one of us. But it has a perceived meaning for you, the thinker, the originator of that thought. So it's not just cheese. It's the cheese that makes you sick. It's not just an impulsive, scary image, but it's you. And why did you have that image? What does that mean or say about you? And that brings us to three o'clock. Distress. Yes, you might get sick. Heck, you might be a sicko. You might seriously be in danger. Or are you a danger to others? Because you had that thought, a bad thought. And that spirals a person right on down to six o'clock. Compulsions. Compulsions can be mental thoughts, processes, analysis. They can also manifest as rituals or behaviors that you can see outwardly. But their MO is all the same. Save me! Save us all! They are that desperate attempt to absolve yourself from the weight of the scary possible truth of that distressing thought. The intrusive thought demands nothing less than a thousand percent certainty that the bad, scary, intrusive outcome isn't going to come true. And compulsions attempt the impossible. They try to prove that your random thought isn't an empirical fact that means this bad thing won't happen or didn't happen or is happening. And that catapults us right on over to nine o'clock. In the best case of scenarios, it's very temporary, very short-term relief that you get from these compulsions. The cheese might make me sick. Okay, I won't eat the cheese. I'll avoid it. I'll feed it to the dog. I'll hide it in my napkin and I'll throw it away when no one's looking. I'll survive. Maybe this time. Which brings us back toward 12. 
But as we move closer to 12, what have we learned about the cheese? It's still going to make me sick. I might not survive. And thus, the negative reinforcement of having even the teeniest ounce of narrowly escaping the cheese stick's wrath this time. The brain warns us the cheese is bad. The cheese will make you sick. And we're at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and back to 12, which is the next time someone dares to consider cooking a cheese quesadilla at home. And the whole cycle repeats. You see, the whole process is conditioning the OCD brain. Even if you haven't ever taken a psychology class, most people have heard of a man by Pavlov. Ivan Pavlov was a physiologist in his time, and you may recall Pavlov had himself some dogs. In Dr. Saul McLeod's article in Simple Psychology, updated in 2021, there's a great explanation of Pavlovian, otherwise known as classical, conditioning. Pavlov was trying to prove a stimulus-response relationship that was predicted to be inherent. Dogs didn't need to learn to salivate in the presence of food. Rather, the unconditioned stimulus, food, would result in the unconditioned response of mouths watering. But as he went about to measure the salivary response, he started to observe that the dogs would start salivating when cues that were accompanying food delivery, a conditioned stimulus, was now leading to a conditioned response of salvation. It was a learned association that evidenced itself out of co-occurring, repeating actions or behaviors. So whether it was the sound of a lab assistant's feet coming with the food or a bell paired with eating during repeated trials, he discovered that the dogs would start salivating when hearing those footsteps or that bell because they conditioned the brain to recognize it as the presence of food. So if we apply this theory of classical conditioning to the fight, flight, or freeze response that our bodies kick into when there's a perceived threat, then the resulting compulsions are quite understandable. The dog salivated at food, and now the dog salivates at the perceived learned stimulus that the bell or the footsteps means he's going to eat. We may feel anxious or distressed by a thought in which we condition a learned response to cope with that in the moment. But this is where OCD flips the script to something called operant conditioning. Operant conditioning was made popular by a guy named B.F. Skinner. And I found a great write-up from Kendra Cherry as medically reviewed by Dr. David Sussman in Very Well Mind, the June 2020 publication, that explained this type of conditioning really well. Skinner sought to study how the consequences of actions affect behavior. Skinner's principles were influenced in a major way by a guy named Edward Thorndike, who postured something known as the law of effect. As Cherry states it, quote, operant conditioning relies on a fairly simple premise. Actions that are followed by reinforcement will be strengthened and more likely to occur again, end quote. She goes on further to explain Skinner's definition of operant conditioning, quote, operant behaviors, on the other hand, are those under our conscious control. Some may occur spontaneously and others purposely, but it is the consequence of these actions that then influence whether or not they occur again in the future. Our actions on the environment and the consequences of that action make up an important part of the learning process, end quote. There's so much more I could say about operant conditioning, but let's just apply it back to our salivating dog scenario. If the dogs hear footsteps or bells and they start to salivate, 
And in fact, the food is presented to them in all its glory. The dogs are more likely to continue to salivate upon hearing those conditioned stimuli because they received consistent food delivery as a result. Therefore, after a number of trials, even if no food was presented, the dog continues to have this learned response that the bell means food. This is essentially what the OCD brain is doing. By proxy of engaging in those compulsions, we negatively reinforce the validity of the perceived fear or threat of our intrusive thoughts. Thusly, our participation in compulsions leads to the consequence of strengthening the perceived threat and or fear of the intrusive thought. And as this continues to cycle, that intrusive thought and resulting compulsion gains strength. If you want more information about classical conditioning, operant conditioning, all of this, I'm going to do a blog post on OCDFamilyPodcast.com, and you can definitely go there to check it out. Also, the interwebs, the interwebs, there's lots of data out there about classical conditioning, operant conditioning, but it's interesting because in the OCD brain, the compulsions, which is what's perceived to give any relief or chance for survival, if any, is actually what is reinforcing that intrusive thought loop. It feels counterintuitive, but it's actually operant conditioning in the brain. Wild, right? So what can we do about OCD in the brain? And is it a chemical imbalance or what's going on with these thought loops? Well, interestingly enough, OCD was one of the first psychiatric disorders to show evidence of abnormal brain activity within certain regions of the brain, which is noted in Christopher Pinninger's 2014 publication at Yale School of Medicine. He cited the earliest study from Baxter and colleagues out of UCLA in 1987, and the research has continued and grown over the past few decades, which continues to be analyzed by different researchers today. But while brain scan of an individual with OCD evidences abnormal brain activity, it doesn't tell us about the individual's experience or manifestation of intrusive thought loops. As these can really be so variable, even within a single individual's lifespan, let alone across different people. So what does that mean? It basically means while brain imaging on its own isn't capable of being diagnostic at this point, there is evidence to show that OCD kicks the brain into DEFCON 9 regarding these feedback loops. So what does that mean for treatment? Well, a couple of things. It means no matter how well you can rationalize, argue, reassure, or even avoid, the OCD suffers brain chemistry is reinforcing this feedback loop. But fortunately, we've also learned about classical and operant conditioning. Whether examining inherent learning or conscious control, which, again, can occur spontaneously or purposefully, we have the ability to condition responses in our brain that affect the learning process. Historically, research shows that anxiety disorders respond well to the process of exposure therapy. The idea here is if we expose our brains to anxious triggers and we don't rescue the brain out of the perceived threat, then the brain will learn that it can survive that exposure and it will habituate over time. In fact, habituation and desensitization are buzzwords in the cognitive behavioral therapy world, otherwise known as CBT. And most insurances, at least here in the United States, love CBT because it's specific and has measurable goals and outcomes. But what does habituation and desensitization mean? 
Well, the American Psychological Association, or APA, defines habituation as, quote, growing accustomed to a situation or stimulus, end quote. This means eventually, if those dogs we chatted about earlier stop hearing bells paired with food delivery after multiple trials and time, then their brains will start to adapt and the co-occurring salivatory response will decrease or extinguish over time. And the APA defines desensitization as, quote, a reduction in emotional or physical reactivity to stimuli that is achieved by such means as deconditioning techniques, end quote. So not only can your brain adapt through the process of habituation, but we can decondition the fight, flight, or freeze responses and thusly lower anxiety. Well, this all sounds well and good. And it is well and good for your run-of-the-mill anxiety disorders. But OCD is different. In OCD, even if you survive the exposure, the brain doesn't learn it's because the threat isn't real. Rather, the brain counters that the big bad outcomes didn't happen this time. But next time, oh baby, it will happen. Could happen. Did happen. Ooh, insert panic. So what's a person to do? Fortunately, operant conditioning taught us that by engaging in our compulsions, we're actually reinforcing the thought loop. So the act of not engaging in said compulsions are our best defense for aiding our brain in learning new responses. Thusly, ERP therapy was born. ERP stands for Exposure and Response Prevention, and it combines the exposure trials with intentional response prevention, i.e., not engaging in your compulsions. Because again, if repeating the compulsions are actually reinforcing the intrusive thought loops, then not engaging in the compulsions is so very important to breaking the cycle. So no biggie, right? (sighs) If only. It's like telling someone not to tense up if you see a car about to crash into you. That's okay. You got this, right? Yeah. No. Wrong. It's hard. It's very hard. But it's not impossible. And it's actually proven to be so effective over the last 50 years that it's considered the gold standard for OCD treatment. Efficacy rates have been reported upwards of 80%, whether looking at reduced symptoms or even remission. And that's crazy to me. Like, crazy cool. Because in mental health, we don't get those kind of numbers. Like, ever. That I know of, at least. Yeah. And the quality of life difference that it brings the OCD sufferer to their loved ones, it's immeasurable. So if we clean nothing else from this lowdown on OCD, yeah, you know me, (laughs) it's that ERP is the way to go. And depending on the intensity of a sufferer's individual case, medication may also be warranted. Because again, we can help the brain learn new things. But under the hood, we have a neurological circuitry that is reinforcing those thought loops. And while research shows that ERP is more effective than medication, and medication alone doesn't evidence the most successful outcomes, ERP plus medication may be needed. And that's an important conversation to have with your medical and your mental health providers. I'll just remind you, I'm not a doctor. This isn't therapy. This is just factual information. Please follow up with your treatment providers accordingly. Lastly, you may recall earlier I said OCD wants nothing less than 1,000% certainty. 
Well, we can do all the ERP in the world, but unless we can embrace that one of the only certainties we are afforded in life is that uncertainty exists, we will continue to be stuck. This is because life is full of uncertainties. I'm sitting at my desk recording this podcast, and I'm granting that the chair underneath me isn't going to break, or the equipment isn't going to short circuit, or in some other random sort of event, I don't know, my house isn't going to explode. And I'm probably right. Or if I'm not, maybe I should apologize in advance for the screeching sound distortion that will likely be painful to your ears. And to think I just vacuumed upstairs. I mean, I so would have spent that time better if the house was just going to blow up anyway. (laughs) You see, I'm so confident in my rightness that I'm not even doubting my safety or security in this regard. But could those things happen? I mean, it could. But do I worry about it? Even after thinking about it out loud? No. And you know what? This is true for all of us. There are a lot of things that we just grant or trust or have faith in that things are going to work out. And yet OCD assaults the OCD sufferer with its hypocrisy, demanding that actually there are things that you must know 1000%. These are non-negotiable. And true to vicious form, it tends to sink its tentacles into what matters most in your life. Your family, your religion, your safety, others' safety your health? OCD is an absolute monster, and it terrorizes the sufferer as well as the sufferer's community. And no matter what compulsions it demands, it's never, ever satisfied. It's never enough. That's why I'm creating this content. That's why I wanted to provide a forum for discussion, support, ideas, grievances, you name it. ERP helps the OCD sufferer start to boss back their OCD, and that's important. But how does the family system manage to boss back OCD? How does the partner or spouse achieve this? Are they helping? Are they reassuring? How do we not trip over ourselves or really figure out what accommodation is versus just trying to comfort our loved one who is constantly tortured by these incessant thought loops and compulsions? I bloomed as a professional in the greater Los Angeles area, and we were so lucky to have so many resources in that area. But I mainly practice in northern Indiana now. And I can tell you this. OCD is an underdiagnosed, misunderstood disorder. Say it again for the people in the back! (laughs) I mean, most practitioners learn about OCD in a psychopathology graduate course where we had to commit a bajillion criterion to rote memory about every diagnosis relevant at that time. And you know what? That included me. I TA'd for psychopathology, and I still had no clue about OCD. Until I did. And since then, I've learned a lot. And I have a lot to learn still. But I recognize that as much as the OCD sufferer needs support, And research has shown that it takes an average of 14 to 17 years from the onset of symptoms for that sufferer to receive appropriate treatment. What about the family? What about the husband or the wife? What about the child? What about the parent? It's hard enough for the OCD sufferer to get the support they need, and in suburban and rural areas, often the family has to fend for itself. But there's more. 
people use OCD synonymously with preferential behavior. Like, let me just pack and organize this area better. I mean, I get so OCD about this. <laughs> uh, I like colors to be sequential, and it just drives me crazy when one little thing is off. <laughs> yeah. Or how many times have you heard someone say, oh my gosh, I'm like so OCD about this. I just need to move this real quick. Yeah, that's not OCD. That's called having a preference. That's called liking things a certain way. And that's incredibly different than saying, if I don't move this, something bad will happen. I might have made a mistake and it might hurt someone I love. Or having to move that thing. Or having to move that thing over and over and over and over again, or in repetitions of threes, or maybe twos, insert your number. Or maybe it's not a number. Maybe it's just until that, that thing feels just right. Will it ever be just right? People call preferences OCD when they usually mean, hi, I'm type A, and I prefer things to be a certain way. And, oh, it feels so good when it is. How satisfying. But the OCD sufferer often is tormented, serving their compulsions with the fear that it will never, ever be good enough. Well, friends, you are not alone. And I'm not alone. And we are better together. OCD is personal for me. As I've shared with my son Jack's permission, he lives with OCD. But don't just take it from me. Let's listen to him describe it a bit more. Basically, my OCD, I have quite a few things that my OCD likes to interact with. What's the story that OCD tells you is going to happen? Well, basically, one I think is cheese. Cheese. Yeah, cheese. Yeah. Tell me about the cheese. Yeah. Because I heard that you ate some cheese for dinner, even tonight. A cheese stick, perhaps. Well, well, Dad gave me, like, a small rectangle. It was white. It was about the same. It was about, like, cheddar. I didn't know what type it was. At first, I thought it was mozzarella, mm -hmm. which I would only think I could only eat on pizzas. Mm-hmm. Cheddar's the bad one, huh? Yeah, that's the one that OCD mostly interacts with. So what's the story that OCD tells Jack about cheddar cheese? Join us next week to get the download on cheddar cheese and more. But guess what? OCD is also personal to me because I have OCD. I didn't recognize it by that name. I just thought, hey, I'm an anxious person. <laughs> But my M.O. has always been to face my fears. So why wasn't exposure therapy working for me? Well, I faced my fears, but I compulsed as well. And at a very high level, I engaged in a lot of mental compulsions, a sprinkling of rituals, and I leaned heavily into my body's physiological and somatic cueing. Translation, I was a ball of nerves on a not-so-joyous ride, but I wouldn't be having all these sensations if something wasn't wrong, right? Like, I wouldn't be feeling dizzy or lightheaded, my chest wouldn't hurt, or I wouldn't be having these balance episodes. 
I wouldn't be smacked down with another migraine if this was just like anxiety, right? I know anxiety. This isn't just anxiety. And hey, for what is worth, I was right. Ding, 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 ding. It was OCD. And I tell you this because even after a few years into my OCD training, I still didn't recognize that my anxiety was a result of my OCD. I think that's an important point because when it comes to OCD, comorbidities are very common. What's a comorbidity? And why do all these psych terms sound so negative? I mean, seriously, it sounds like we're saying we're co-dead. I mean, if that's not making it into a Hallmark card, what is? <laughs> or psychoeducation? Is that education for psychopaths? Psychopathology. Are we pathologically psychotic? Or my favorite, psychopharm. We're farming psychos. Like, come get your psychos, take four, get one free. No. Psych actually comes from, I believe, the Greek word psyche. And it's been a minute since I've learned this, but I'm sure the interwebs could serve you a number of sources regarding its origin. If I remember correctly, it means like mind or soul. Honestly, it's kind of beautiful. It just sounds pejorative, especially when it's associated with mental health. And let's face it, mental health often sounds pejorative. There was this wonderful presenter at a recent Faith and OCD conference that said something akin to, OCD is not a casserole disorder. For the life of me, I cannot remember this woman's name, so forgive me for not being able to cite her properly at this time, but I will definitely update that information if and when I can track down who said it. But I think this is so true for mental health at large. I mean, you have a knee surgery or a baby or death in the family. And people will bring you a meal, especially here in the Midwest. They offer support, maybe even run an errand or two for you, anything you need. But if you're depressed, anxious, feeling paranoid, afraid, where's that lasagna that you just preheat your oven and bake for an hour? I mean, we both know there's no lasagna. But comorbidities are very common, especially with OCD. And while anxiety and depression are amongst the highest, some honorable mentions include attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism spectrum disorder, eating disorder, Tourette's syndrome, substance abuse. This list is not exhaustive, and often the comorbidity is what gets identified, if at all. OCD is also classified as an umbrella disorder, with OCD-related disorders associated with it. But they are not the same as OCD, though they share a similar profile with regards to urges and they compel certain responses. This includes, but is not limited to, emetophobia, body dysmorphic disorder, body-focused repetitive behaviors, hoarding disorder, and more. These can co-occur with OCD, but they can also be mutually exclusive. And much like their sister from another mister, they are often misunderstood and misdiagnosed. My hope with this podcast is that we can likewise support our OCD-related community. Why? Because again, we're better together, and knowledge is power, and comorbidities are prevalent enough that it really is worth our while. Lastly, OCD is personal to me because I grew up with OCD distressing loved ones around me, even though we didn't know this villain by name at that time. I married into a family impacted by OCD, 
and my husband Patrick is on the fence regarding whether his anxiety goes by another name. Let's listen as Patrick shares a little more about his thought loops. This is probably why sometimes you, you're like, let's not do reassurance seeking or whatever, because it's like that can help with the mm-hmm. sort of obsessive thoughts. Like, if I can just get reassurance on this thing I'm worried about, this intrusive thought, it'll go away. But then you seek that reassurance. And it doesn't help. In fact, it just kind of makes your if you are having an obsessive thought, it can make you be like, well, it didn't you didn't it didn't uh, get you this time, as you put it. But uh, but next time you'll better double check again, because one of these days it's going to come back and it's going to be no. Spoken like a man, maybe even said that to me today. I, I did. He did. He said to me. <laughs> That's why I was just thinking. He said to me, if I may, he said to me, I just want you to give me reassurance on this. I love that he labeled it and everything was such a pretty package. And I was like, no. <laughs> that did not. He didn't like that. But I was like, I'm not going to give you reassurance. Especially since you called it reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I knew that what I was saying was going to get a no. Yeah. I was kind of like, I dare you to say no. And she said no. And I was like, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> He's feeling a lot more levity about it now. I it's think, just, you know, yeah, marriage. Marriage. <laughs> I'm so appreciative of the conversations we created with Jack and Patrick. And I'm so excited for the OCD family community to hear more about our family's experience with OCD in next week's episode. Also, I'll look forward to talking with more guests, some with lived experience, but also practitioners, researchers, community advocates, psychiatrists, clergy, authors, you name it. And speaking of guests, as a part of my launching campaign on social media, I offered a chance to win a featured guest slot to anyone who liked and shared content across social media platforms about this premiere episode. And I'm announcing that winner is Jennifer from Virginia. Thank you so much for liking and sharing about our OCD family community. Your support is invaluable to us, and I will be following up with you about scheduling an appearance at some point during season one. Now, without further ado, I'm excited to roll into our intrusive thoughts segment. Intrusive what? Intrusive thoughts. You know, I had to include an intrusive thought segment because it's such a little inside joke here around my house, which tells you just how fun we are over here. (laughs) Whenever somebody says something completely off the wall, they are perseverating or seeking reassurance on something, we tend to sing intrusive thoughts their way. But also, I wanted to include this segment because I thought it would be a great way to leave our OCD family community with a little something they can take with them. It's like packing you a plate on your way out the door. It's just a little something you can take with you. So this segment, which will be a recurring segment at the end of each episode, will aim to give an application piece for y'all that is relevant to today's episode. And let the record show timestamp! I've dropped my first y'all. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. Most of my professional life has cultivated on the West Coast, but you can take the girl out of the country. You can't take the country out of the girl. And hey, I'm living and practicing in the Midwest again, so you've been warned, y'all. Y'all've been warned. (laughs) So today's application piece is a challenge to become curious, to become more aware of when OCD might be popping up in your life. Whether you are an OCD sufferer or a loved one to a sufferer, 
I want to challenge you to identify at least one area where you can spy OCD's operant conditioning at play. And what if you don't have OCD or you're just a lovely person who is listening to this podcast to support a lovely podcast host? Oh, shucks. But you really don't have much knowledge about OCD. Well, if you made it to this point of the podcast, then my hope is now you know a little more about it. And because we lovely human folk are all fortunate enough to have amazing brains, then that means you've already experienced an intrusive thought or two along the way. So my challenge for you is to stay curiouser and curiouser. Thanks, Lewis Carroll, for that, Jim. But seriously, we're all in this wonderland together. Together. Yes, we really are better together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and even some chances to win some OCD family swag. Oh yeah, nothing says family like matching t-shirts or maybe stress pokes. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.